Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. How are we doing today, church? So if you guys can do a favor for me, when you guys came in, you guys got a worship guide. It looks kind of like this, right? I want everybody to take it out and hold it up so I know that you have one, right? Um, And on the bottom of that worship guide is a connection card. It's a little perforated edge. I'd ask that if you're a guest, if you guys go ahead and write your name on that, contact information, one of our pastors would love to get up with you this week and just see how you're doing. You can do one of two things with that. You could take that connection card and drop it in the baskets. It'll be on your way out of the auditorium today. Or you can take it to our Connections desk and one of our guest services volunteers. They would love to um, just meet with you and offer you a free gift of saying thanks for coming with us. Um, Also, those baskets that are in the back, if you guys are Revo members, that's where the offering will be this week. So we're not going to pass an offering basket. So if you're a guest here, please don't feel obligated to to give. This service is our gift to you, right? And a word about offering. Um, My family and I, we're, we're missionaries. And It's because of the generosity of churches like Revo. It's because of the generosity of Revo Church specifically that we're able to do the ministry that we do. And so I just want to say thank you for giving and know that that what you give is sowing seeds into the ministry around the world. Right? So for those that are looking at me and thinking to yourself, hey, perhaps um, Nathan's gotten a little bit taller, maybe uh, quite a bit more handsome, I would say, Uh, maybe lost a lot more hair, Um, I, in fact, am not Nathan Klein, right? So my name is Josh, um, and and a couple things. One, I'm an R group leader, so big shout out to my R group. I love you guys. They were over at my house yesterday. We were placing an alternator in uh, a van that I drove when I was in high school, so that tells you how old it was. And and also, I am an R world volunteer. Uh, Most of the time, I'm up in R theater dressed in a chicken suit or some kind of ridiculousness. Um, teaching our kids about Jesus. But today I get the awesome opportunity of uh, sharing with you guys just the word that, that the Lord's laid on me. You know, I, I do think I need to tell you that, that I have a family, right? That, I, that I'm a wife, that I'm a wife, that, that I'm a husband, right? To an amazing wife, Amy. Um, we've been married 11 years. Uh, she's fantastic, wonderful. It's been the best 11 years of my life and some of the hardest 11 years of her life, I would guess. Um, and then we have three wonderful kids. We have Madeline, who's six. We have Joseph or Jojo, who's almost five, and we have Elijah, that's three. Um, I have two secret uh, hobbies that I really love, or I guess they're guilty pleasures. One is hip-hop music um, from about 1993 when I was in sixth grade. I'll date myself to 2004 when we got married. Um, I'm not proud of that, but it is what it is. And then um, I also love WWE professional wrestling. I grew up watching it with my grandmother, and I still do to this day. I love The Rock and all that stuff, so... There you go, right? Just throw all the cards on the table. Um, one more thing that I love. I love this time of year. Absolutely love it. I love fall. Labor Day is upon us. Summer is in the rearview mirror, and fall is here, right? Bring on leaf piles. Bring on the changing of the colors in the leaves. Bring on Halloween. Bring on candy corn. Bring on pumpkin spice lattes, right? Right? Who's had one? Raise your hand if you've had one. Anybody? That's right. Hey, I'm not ashamed. I have two. On the way to church today, it was awesome. All right? Also, bring on college football, right? All right? I spent a lot of time yesterday watching college football. 
I fell asleep watching college football. I love it. I love everything about it. Right? I love, I love the video packages that get me hyped up. I love going and tailgating. I love, I love the late hits that I saw yesterday and people getting ejected when somebody got their bell rung. I love the rivalries. I love that every game means something. Right? I love it. I love college football. But I got a problem. You see, I'm a suffering college football fan. Right? I, went to, I went to NC State University. Right? So go pack for, for those uh, that, are, that are fans. And here's the deal. I was there when we were really, really good. Like, really good. Like, Phillip Rivers was our quarterback good. Like, we went to the Gator Bowl, and we beat Notre Dame, and we were 10-3. and And yes, I said we, because I bought tickets. Don't tell me that I wasn't on the team, right? And we were going to win the national championship. But the next year came, and things not so much, right? Didn't work out so well for us. Um, and then the next year, Philip Rivers left, and then we were really bad. And then the next year, more disappointment. And then we had this guy named Russell Wilson, and he came in, and he was going to be the Savior, and everything was looking great. And we went, or he went to the Rose Bowl. We didn't, because he went with another team. That hurt, right? And so every year, I tell myself, man, we're going to get going with this thing. We're going to take it to the next level and every year disappointment and so I started asking myself I'm like man I should just maybe become a fan of the SEC right like I'll just hop on the Alabama bandwagon or something like that like I don't you know but every year NC State goes and they beat up on like three division 12 opponents and then we go play Clemson and I'm all jacked up and I'm all in and we lose by half a hundred right more disappointment and so that's my suffering as a college football fan and right like we can kind of joke about it because it's fandom right but here's what I know um, some of you guys, right here, right now, in this season of your life, you guys are suffering, right? Whether it's loss, right? whether it's pain in relationships, whether it's frustrations with a job, a friend, a spouse, a coworker, or parent, whether it's emotional, physical, financial, mental, or spiritual, suffering is either just past is in the here and now, or is on its way. And really, that's what we've been covering when we've been looking at Job, right? Looking at our sufferings and our pain through the lens of Job. Right? And we can look at Job's life and we can say, man, he lost all of his family. He lost all of his livestock. He lost all of his fortune. He had boils covering him from head to toe, right? He had friends telling him that he was an idiot. We can look at his life and say, man, nobody, nobody's gone through as much stuff as Job. There's nobody in the Bible that's gone through as much junk as he has. There's nobody that's suffered as much. Right? Nobody except for maybe one person. You know, today as we look um, yeah, at the tables, the bread that's on them that represents the body that was broken for us. And the juice that's on them it represents the blood that was poured out for us. Today, as we partake and celebrate in communion, we want to look to the suffering of Jesus. Something that we too often overlook because we're too focused on ourselves. So today, I'd ask that we take those feelings and thoughts of ourselves and we push them away. Right? And instead, we look towards the suffering of Jesus.
We look at his pain. We look at his plight. We look at his suffering. I want to look at Jesus' suffering in four different ways. I'd like, I'd like us to consider his, his economic suffering. I'd like for us to consider his, his societal suffering. How did his own people treat him? I'd like us to look at his relational suffering and what happened to the people around him. And then ultimately, I'd like to look, us to look at the physical suffering. What did he suffer as he was hanging there on the cross? If you guys have your Bibles, you can take them out or go um, just pull out your phone if you're going into an app. And if you don't desire to do that, you can follow along. The, the words will be on the screen, but we're going to go to Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. Um, and so we see Jesus, and, and at first he's a baby, and he's cute, and he's in a manger. And we're like, oh, that's such a cool story. Um, this is what it says. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. What we don't realize about Jesus is that that cute baby in the manger, that he left it all to come and be one of us. That he suffered immense economic suffering. Not too dissimilar and much greater than the times when you and I suffer in our lives when we have a bill that just hits or a um, job that maybe is, we're in transition from, right? We've been there through this economic suffering. Right? You know what that's like. Our Lord left the only place that he's ever known, the place where he left all the glory and splendor and riches of heaven. Right? The place that has a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Right, Like Jesus left it all. The creator of the Lord left it all to become part of creation. We bemoan the sacrifice and we say, all right, if, if sacrifice is this ladder, we say that Jesus leaving heaven's this little step down the ladder and then Jesus being sacrificed, right? Like that's, that's a big, big suffering, right? And while the physical suffering of crucifixion is absolutely true and we'll cover that, I think we underestimate the economic suffering that our Lord chose to endure to have his body broken for us. You know, so he comes as, as a Jew to the Jews, right? He comes to his own people. And in John chapter 1, um, this, is, this is their response. It says in John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Another translation even says that they rejected him. Now when I think about my own life, or you maybe think about your own lives, about the times that you've been rejected. Um, I was playing basketball just the other day. I play a lot of basketball. Just the other day I was at Polo Park and um, Community Center and fantastic. It's free basketball. I go there on Monday nights and it's wonderful. And 
I've played basketball my whole life, so I know that if there's nine people in the gym and that I'm the 10th person that comes into the gym, then that means a basketball game will happen soon, right? Um, because if you play five on five, then that means I'm there and I'm ready to play. Um, but here's what I underestimated. Uh, I underestimated that I um, am about 10 to 15 years older than everybody else that's in that gym, um, and I'm about 9,000 times less athletic than them. And so I'm in there, and I'm shooting around, and I'm like, yeah, I just can't wait, just can't wait. I'm going to play a game, going to play a game. And um, I'm like, hey, guys, are we going to play? They're like, yeah, you know, just a minute. I'm like, okay, awesome. And, and then more guys come, and then more guys. And I'm like, hey you guys are started playing a game. And I'm left over there shooting by myself, right? I was rejected because they didn't want to play with me. Um, you know, you guys have faced similar rejections, right? If it's on, the, it's on the field and you're the last person picked to play or you passed over for a job, right? Like the Lord faced rejection from his people. He also faced indifference from his people, right? Um, just the other day, a salesman came to my house and he knocked on the door and he said, hey, um, man, I'm just interested in, in offering you some educational books. Can we talk about that? And I said, yeah, man, my wife's a teacher, and we're not really interested, but, but good luck, man. Have a great day. And so I just kind of closed the door and didn't even think about him anymore, right? Just indifferent, indifferent to the, to the salesman. Jesus faced all that, but he faced something else. It says that um, the rejection that they're talking about is his people were literally out to destroy him. They were going to destroy Jesus. And so, those that were with him during all of this, those that were with him, when the going got tough, they literally got going. Jesus' best friends just peaced out. They left. They were gone. Um. You know, you see Jesus in the garden, and, and he says, Hey, guys, can you please pray for me? I, I just need prayer right now. And they're like, We got you, Jesus. We're going to do it. And they fall asleep. See him later, and there's this parade of people, and they're um, brought up to him, and one of his 12 closest friends betrays him with a kiss. Later, we see Jesus on trial, and one of the three people that he's invested into most chooses to deny him. John uh, summarizes Peter in John chapter 18, starting in, verse, starting in verse 15 in John chapter 18. This is what he says. He says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of this high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple was known to the high priest and went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers... Said, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Now in chapter 25, or in verse 25, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. The third way that we see Jesus suffering is that he suffered relationally. 
I imagine Jesus being there on trial and knowing the result of what's happening, knowing what he's walking into. And he looks over to his best friend who he knows has just denied him three times. And he just feels totally alone. My family and I, we lived in, a, um, in another country for a little while as missionaries, and um, there were definitely times where we felt alone. Um, felt like nobody could, could be with us or nobody understood what we were going through, but not the kind of abandonment that our Lord feels at this moment. Just completely alone. Either betrayed or abandoned by his closest friends. And our Jesus is left alone, suffering through his economic suffering and his societal suffering being rejected by his own people, suffering through his relational suffering by his best friends leaving him to face his last act of suffering, the physical suffering on the cross. Our gospel writers don't help us much with this. They don't, they don't seem to think a detailed description of crucifixion, of flogging, they don't seem to think that that's necessary because it was so common during their time. Um, John says in, in, in his gospel, it says, Pilate, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to them to be crucified, and they crucified him. Right? That's really all we get. But modern science helps us understand this greater. Right? It helps us understand what Jesus would have endured. What I have here is some descriptions physically of what Jesus endured as his body literally was broken for us as his blood literally was poured out for you and me. And what I have here are the descriptions of what it means when we say that Jesus suffered and died for our sins. I'd like to take, take a minute and read through a, a couple of these, and they're in medical terms, and ultimately I'm not a doctor, so that's why I need to read some of this stuff. Um, we first see Jesus in the garden, right? He's face down on the ground, and he's praying and he sweats blood. Right? This is what it says. It says, Though very rare, the phenomena of hematodrocious or bloody sweat is well documented. Under great emotional stress of the kind our Lord suffered, tiny capillaries in his sweat glands would break, thus mixing blood with sweat. That process might have produced marked weakness and possible shock. Another explanation says that his his skin and veins were tender. And any kind of small cut would have caused a tremendous amount of bleeding. So he's taken from the garden and he's brought to trial and he's condemned to be beaten through the process of flogging. And this is what, um, this is kind of a description of what that is. It says preparations for flogging were, were carried out when the prisoner, Jesus, was stripped of his clothes his hands were tied up on a post above his head. Um, a legionnaire or two is standing behind him with a flagrum, and on that flagrum are several long thongs of leather. Attached to that leather are balls of lead or pieces of sheep bone. And so what happens is, is that those legionnaires, they come down and they whip him again and again and again. 
Jewish law said that you could have um, only 39 lashes, couldn't go above that, but it's unlikely that the Romans adhered to that, right? At first, those thongs, they only cut through the skin, but, but then as the beating, it continues, and it continues, and it continues, cuts through veins, arteries, ultimately cutting through the muscle, right? As you can imagine that Jesus' back is now left in long ribbons, unrecognizable mass of bleeding tissue. When the centurion that's in charge finally determines that Jesus is near death, they untie him and allow him to slump to the pavement, drenched in his own blood. The Romans think it's hilarious, right, that he's this king, that he proclaims to be king. So what they do is they take this provincial Jew, Jesus, and they put a robe on his back. They give him a a scepter in his hand, a stick in his hand. And what they need to make this travesty complete is they need a crown for their king. And so they take flexible branches with long thorns and they weave them together in a crown. They place that crown on the head of Jesus and they press the thorns into his scalp. Again, more bleeding, right? If you've ever gotten a cut on your head, you know what that's like. When they get tired of that, they they take the stick and they beat him in the face and then they take it and they hit him in the head driving those thorns deeper and deeper. Finally, they get bored with all of this, and they take the stick away, and they take the robe that they've placed on his back, and they rip it apart, um, just tearing it quickly off his back, like we tear off a Band-Aid, except that Jesus' back has just been beaten, and it's just now beginning to clot, adhering to the robe, and you can imagine the pain that Jesus felt as he pulled that robe back, almost like he was been beaten again. So Jesus is condemned to die, and he marches up the um, Via Dolorosa, too weak to carry his own cross. So someone helps him with that and they go to the place of Golgotha where he's going to be crucified. This is what it says. It says, um, Simon's ordered to place the cross beam on the ground and Jesus is thrown back his shoulders against the rough wood. Again, keeping in mind the beating that Jesus felt. Legionnaire feels for the depression in his wrist and throws his wrist against the wood and drives a wrought iron nail deep into the wood. He goes and does that to the other side and Jesus' arms are left out, slightly bent, allowing for flexion and movement. He's hoisted up and now he's hanging vertically by his arms and they drive a nail through both of the arches of his feet, keeping his knees slightly bent so he can move up and down. Jesus is now crucified. Here's a description of what he experienced during crucifixion. It says, as he slowly sags down, with more weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating pain shoots along his fingers and up the arms to explode the brain. The nails in his wrists are putting pressure on his median nerves. He pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment. He places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, searing agony of the nail as it tearing through the nerves between his metatarsal bones on his feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward, hanging by his arms. His pectoral muscles are paralyzed and his intercostal muscles cannot work. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the blood and and cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he's able to push himself upward 
and exhale to bring in more life-giving oxygen. Jesus experiences hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint rendering cramps, and intermittent partial asphyxiation. Searing pain where tissues torn from his lacerated back as he tries to push himself up and down the rough lumber. Then another agony begins to set in as fluids build up around his chest. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level and his compressed heart is struggling to pump even thick, sluggish blood. His tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp even small gulps of air. The dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain and Jesus gasps a cry, I thirst. And shortly after that, our Savior dies. In light of the suffering of Jesus, I can't help to think but how I would respond. How would I respond to the economic suffering that Jesus went through? How would I respond to the societal or relational suffering that Jesus went through? How would I respond to the physical suffering of crucifixion? How would you respond? I'm afraid I know how we would respond. That you and I, when given those same situations, what would have happened is we would have sinned. That's what, that would have been our response, but he didn't. Jesus didn't sin so he could take the physical pain and suffering. The wrath of God in our place, right? When we say that Jesus died on the cross, those descriptions that we just read, that's what we mean. When we describe the bread broken for us and the juice poured out for us, that's what we're talking about. That though he deserved honor, he absorbed dishonor. That though he deserved praise, he was rejected. That though he deserved worship, he was mocked and beaten and murdered. Jesus willingly subjected himself to every kind of suffering under the sun so that, so that in carrying those sufferings, he might finally defeat them. That in Christ, all of the effects of sin, the societal dysfunction, the relational deficiencies, all of it, all of it gets nailed to the cross. On the cross, Jesus bought us a future in which sin and its effects are dead and they are displayed as such on the cross as he who knew no sin carried sin, was impacted by sin, had all the effects of sin thrust upon him for us. Jesus became the embodiment of sin so that such when Jesus died, sin died. And it's that reality that brings us to the tables today. So look at our lives. knowing that the suffering that we may face, that they are all, while here in the present, we are called to a greater place because of the suffering that the Lord has done. When we look at the bread broken for us and the juice poured out for us, that that's what we mean. And we come to these tables today with grateful, celebratory, and sober hearts, knowing well aware what it cost our Savior to procure our salvation.